I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. When the pandemic made traditional concerts an impossibility, a local contemporary orchestra called Intersection decided to switch gears. They launched a project to share new music by female and genderqueer composers through online video. And they found a lot of that music right here in Nashville. That's because this city is increasingly home to a diverse group of people writing classical music that's complex, thought-provoking, and truly new. Later this hour, we're going to meet a few of those composers and find out how Nashville became such a hub. But first, if you want to know about holiday gatherings and activities, you are in the right place. Marquise Munson is with our sister station, WNXP. Each week, he discovers the cool events in town and lets you know how and where you can explore them with his segment, What Where Wednesday. I'll let him take it away from here. I'm Marquise Munson here with another edition of Nashville Public Radio's What Wear Wednesday, keeping you up to date with the happenings in Nashville this week. From Joby Riccio album release show at American Legion post 82 on Friday, Nashville based band Girl House hitting the stage at the OG basement on Saturday. There are Christmas theme shows with Grammy Award winning jazz artist Samara Joy and with the Nashville Symphony legendary group Boys to Men. Plus, WNXP presents Big Frida's Christmas in Central City at Brooklyn Bowl this Sunday. For more events, go to WNXP.org slash events. This week for What Wear Wednesdays, we discuss the second annual Healing in the Holidays, a benefit for Healing in the Margins at Anza Blue this Friday, featuring performances from Fancy Haygood and former WNIXP Nashville Artist of the Month, Joy Alatakun. Ashley Hampton, co-founder and executive director of Healing in the Margins, joined me to discuss the overall mission for the organization. I wear many hats in mental health here. I own a counseling center with my wife called Hampton House Counseling. There we serve predominantly LGBTQIA plus folks and the BIPOC community. And that's like who we work with as well. So our team is made up of clinicians from marginalized communities. Through having that space, we realized that there were so many needs not being met, so many people that still needed access to therapy, so many skills that clinicians needed to be able to have. And really just like so much harm still happening in the community for brown, black, and queer folks. So we founded Healing in the Margins, which is a nonprofit dedicated to truly changing the system of mental health. So we're looking at how are clinicians treated? How do clients get into therapy? How can they afford it? And then also how do we go out into the community and train people to not hurt brown, black, and queer folks? So we're really coming at this from a systemic angle, wanting to help create change in mental health for our community. Come lay your burdens down, lean on my shoulder. Come let your problems be whole world away. And if you feel alone, I'm here to catch you. I got these open arms and then you'll be safe. Healing in Holidays, the whole goal of this event is to raise funding for the next year so that people can get into therapy and, and so on and so forth. So really so much of my job is building relationships within the community. And so I had this idea of like who are artists in Nashville who identify with our mission, who are our BIPOC folks, who are LGBT folks, and just really started connecting with people and asked, would you want to be involved? Because we know that your voice matters. And and yeah, we were super lucky that both of them agreed. So we're beyond thrilled to be able to have space with them, you know, highlighting the need for mental health care for our community. And, you know, really 
one of the main things that we we need right now is just for folks to understand what we're doing because I truly think that a lot of people are passionate about helping the LGBTQI plus community, about helping to their black and brown you know community. So really wanting visibility, representation, people knowing that we're here. It's easy to forget that you are strong. You've been pushing against the tide You tried to do it on your own In our state of Tennessee, there has been some deeply hard and painful legislation that kind of went through. Our community is suffering. BIPOC and people who identify as LGBTQIA+, we are all suffering. We are all hurting. And so I think that it's now more than ever, we need mental health resources. And I think that a lot of times it's like, how do we make it happen? And so we really want to make this as tangible as possible with the experience that we have serving this community. You know, I've been a therapist for 10 years in doing this and holding space for people. And I think that what helps again is people who are saying, okay, this is a problem. And while we may not have all the solutions, we can be a solution. We can help people go to a therapist of their choosing, right? We, people should not have to sacrifice who they feel safe for with who they can afford as a therapist. And so our hope is that people can come to us and be able to go see any therapist of their choosing because they deserve that, that dignity and that care. So that's really why we do this work. For more information on Healing in the Margins and other events happening this week, visit WNXP.org. My name is Marquise Munson. Thank you for listening to another edition of What Were Wednesdays. Keeping the light on. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll hear from classical composers in Nashville, from folks who deal in cellos, choirs, and giant Chinese zithers instead of fiddles and guitars. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Did you know that the most popular music venue in Nashville used to be an opera house? It was back in the 19th century, well before the Ryman was built. Classical music may not be the sound the city is known for, but it's got a long history here. And more than ever, composers in Music City are taking the classical genre in new directions. Now, if your image of a classical composer is an old white dude, sure, there have been plenty of those, and there still are. But increasingly, the scene is more and more diverse. There are Tennessee natives and immigrants from all over the globe, and this diversity is reflected in the music that they write. Last November, WPLN's Nina Cardona talked with some of these composers. Here's her conversation with Larissa Maestro, Dave Ragland, and Wu Fei. Fei, I'd love to start with you. You grew up in Beijing, and I understand that music was part of your life starting at a very young age. What was your relationship and experience of music like back then? Um, well, I started a... It wasn't my choice to be uh, to be to be to be honest with. Um, I was chosen to become a musician or to become a music pupil uh, when I was two years old. Wow. <laughs> told, told by my parents later, of course. Um, and uh, so, because in China, the old tradition of even choosing a potential music pupil was a long process. As not only um, you. As a ch the child wanting to learn, but also the family must be committed. So the music professor and the music masters must see all these factors to accept you as a, a, to you know to inherit uh, this this school of learning or the the. So I was yeah I was very young I was a, a, literally a baby, uh, and then when I uh, turned five that's when I started to learn the guzheng, and then when I turned seven started the piano, uh, so and then just went down this path. Um, um, had a complex relationship for sure because you know as a child you that's not your you know nature to want to sit there for two hours a day for the <laughs> right. next 10 years to do this <laughs> well you didn't have a choice as a young child but at some point it did become a choice for you when did you know that you wanted to pursue a career in this not that just that it was something 
told to you, but this is what you actually wanted for yourself and to become a composer. Um, I, well, when I became a composer, I was a teenager. I entered the China Conservatory of Music uh, as a composition major. And that's when I knew that was going to be my path. But I didn't know uh, that writing music was supposed to be for myself. Writing music back then was, for me, it was to pursue a better life, to get a nicer job, because China has a very different um, system in terms of uh, music institution, performing art troops. There's a lot of well-off paid, very stable jobs. Your, your work is just to show up in a music office studio, compose, produce concerts, and you're paid on payroll and with benefit. <laughs> and so that was uh, all my teachers and uh, my parents pictured me, uh, uh, so did I. Um, however, when I came to the States out of curiosity, I knew because China was opening up uh, very fast, although, uh, and uh, my school was also one of the most um, um, kind of uh, internationally uh, interacting with the rest of the world, uh, the kind of music school. So I was fascinated by um, all the information, all the new people uh, from teachers, from uh, students from the UK, from Australia or Hungary or Japan. I, w I met them and I, I was curious about the world. And then when I, uh, and then when uh, eventually I came to the States to continue my uh, music study and during my study, really at the, uh, my graduate study at Mills College in California, I um, hit a wall basically first to uh, realize, oh, I had spent 20, nearly 20 years of my life uh, writing music, not, not for myself. Uh, so, and then at that moment, I realized, okay, uh, I, I need to give it a try, actually, really, I... I have a pair of strong wings, but I haven't used them yet to fly. Ah, that's a beautiful <laughs> so, image. <laughs> so that that was, uh, you know, I have been like just kind of a walking around on the cliff. I was like, well, is that? So, but actually, the bird's job is to fly, and I, I so that was the moment I said, uh, I'm gonna, yeah, actually test my wings. Um, so since then, I've uh, haven't been having a blast uh, creating music, and then. Just to really kind of turn that complex uh, relationship with music, which was not about happiness. It was about just to, you know, conquer the, the pressure to climb the ivory tower, uh, to uh, coming around to the, the, the world where uh, I found myself. I was enjoy playing music, making music, letting go all the structures that, uh, which actually benefit, I benefit from to this day, uh, mm -hmm. that I, I can just thrive to utilize the, the uh, foundation of the structure and then the techniques to, to serve my dream, to have my imagination come true. Larissa, you also got your start at a pretty young age. How, tell us about your experience. How, how did music begin for you? Uh, I started uh, the piano and the violin when I was five. Um, and I loved the piano, but I hated the violin mm. a lot. Um, it was painful, like physically. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> to, to play, uh, because, you know, it's a box right next to your head uh, and it's <laughs> right. really right. loud and high. Um, and, uh, I started begging for cello lessons. I begged my parents for cello lessons for a whole year from the time I was like five and a half to when I was six and a half and they finally gave in and let me start to take cello lessons at, at seven. And it, that was just, I fell in love with that instrument and it was, uh, it, I'm still in love with that instrument. Uh, it's still my, my primary, uh, breadwinning instrument. Um, and I started in the Suzuki method. So, uh, it's, it's very much, uh, based around ear training and uh, performing in groups, learning in groups, learning together. Um, and it, I thrived in that environment quite a bit. Uh, and I think I, there was never really a question aside from uh, a short time when I desperately wanted to be a paleontologist that I, I, I wanted to be in the arts, that I wanted to be making music. It was sort of, uh, I, I don't have a memory aside from that short time in fifth grade. <laughs> <laughs> of we not wanting to be a dinosaur a moment huh oh yeah we well i went to dinosaur national monument and oh, i was like this well, is well, there super you cool yeah. <laughs> so 
so you knew you knew you were an artist you knew music was the thing for you but what where did composing come from for you I was always making up songs all the time I was always making up music all the time um and uh getting my friends together to like arrange a piece of music I thought was cool for a weird uh instrumentation uh when I was in middle school I this, I don't know whether this was when the Ken Burns Civil War documentary came out, but I became obsessed with uh, that piece of Shokin Farewell from mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that series. And I arranged it for like cello and like clarinet. And because that's <laughs> those are the instruments that me and my friends played and we performed it in my seventh grade talent show. Uh, and I just was so thrilled by it and it was so much fun. Uh, and I just continued to like write little things. I was also a, a really huge fan of film music. My father taught a visual communication class at Cornell and I would help him put together clips for his class and the the music was always my favorite part and uh, that was it was just it just made sense to want to start making those things and to make them your own it and make like. them mine. Yeah. yeah. So now Dave you've been here a long time. You were originally from Chattanooga. That's where you got your start working for the Chattanooga Symphony, the opera, and the ballet. How did you know that you wanted to make your career as a composer? Well, I would say that I was, I I mean, I grew up like a lot of um, black uh, musicians and composers um, with a strong church influence. And so, you know, being with my grandparents and my parents at Rosa Sharon Missionary Baptist in Chattanooga and New Monumental um, Missionary Baptist in Chattanooga as well, uh, seeing those musical influences, um, you know, every Sunday is like a lesson from, you know, V.J. Caldwell playing the saxophone or Miss Sarah Haney or Ida, you know, Smallwood le- leading the senior choir. And I didn't realize that, like, those were really kind of like my first music lessons. Mm, um, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, that influence kind of seeped in subconsciously, and I still think it kind of shows up uh, today damn my writing. Well, when did it become that switch from you from, I want to make music like these people do, I want to make music with these people at church or, you know, wherever, to, I want to write music. Yeah. I want to start it from scratch myself. I would say I got the bug. Well, the seed was planted when I went to Tennessee State University, and I was taken in by um, Miss Diana Poe, who, um, fabulous classical soprano and, and choral conductor, and, and at that time, she was head of the Tennessee State University Showstoppers. Mm-hmm. Um, with her, she's very much about versatility and, you know, versimilitude. And we're going to do jazz here and gospel. And that's and, a choir group, right? Like a show choir? Right, show yeah. choir. Yeah, show choir. But, like, we did the spirituals mm-hmm. and we're doing Handel and we're doing, you know, everything opera, everything. Like. Right. So with her influence, is like, okay, you know, I like this. Let me look into it some more. And so that seed got planted there, and then it came around like maybe 12 years later um, when I joined you know, Phi Mu Alpha uh, at Tennessee State University. And they the were music like, fraternity? The music fraternity, right. And um, and they were like, hey, Dave, we heard that you compose. I'm like, where did y'all hear that from? Nobody <laughs> knows this. So like, we want you all to you know, do to create some things for us and all of that. And it's like that kind of reeled me back into So it. there was a need and, and you, you filled it. Right. <laughs> Apparently so. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville. I'm Nina Cardona. We're talking with local composers Larissa Maestro, Dave Raglan, and Wu Fei. And I'd like to talk a little bit now about your music. So Fei, tell us about your style. Oh, wow. Um, hmm. I know it's a big question. I, um, <laughs> yeah, it's a, maybe I would say a, a contemporary, if you like food, I would say it's a contemporary um, global um, cuisine that's uh, rooted with uh, Chinese flavor spices. <laughs> oh, um, that's actually a beautiful it, explanation there. You know, it's like, uh, I would think I, I love melodies. Um, I My training, um, also, uh, I... I Grew up writing for uh, chamber orchestra, uh, symphony. So I liked. Uh, also, I'm an improviser as well on the guzheng or any instrument. Um, so it's definitely guzheng. The Chinese zither has uh, has a, is my main instrument, and uh, um, somehow um, it's um, yeah, it's just like the with a strong flavor of Chinese traditional uh, sound 
and uh, but uh, and because of my my experience of traveling around the world and I love cultures from um, everywhere I went to that uh, I would uh, I love what they offer also from their culture in terms of sounds or uh, style or story just like their spices so yeah. every time I travel I I, I uh, collect a little bit of their their spices and well, think mm, maybe this kind of will taste a little good with the Chinese pepper let me just make some, oh wow it's a new dish <laughs> well and that is what I would think of when I think of your music is kind of that intersection between cultures so so let's hear some of it right now this is called May Apples you composed this back in April on the Guzheng which is a Chinese zither let's listen inspired this piece uh since the pandemic i've been uh just you know the, the world stopped uh it's nature actually i've been hiking every day in the i live in the forest uh so i never paid so much attention to uh, trees mushrooms leaves birds insects um but it has been so amazing every day even you walk on the same tra uh, trail they all look different it was uh, inspired by uh, May apple leaves. Uh, at one kind of uh, a spring day, they were all over. They only, you know, certain plants only are there for two weeks, sometime maybe two months, uh, and then they're gone. So uh, when I saw those uh, uh, May apple leaves, uh, they look like immediately remind me of uh, some pictures from Dr. Seuss books, and uh, so uh, and that just took me somewhere and uh, wanting to create a just like an image in my own head and the story. Well, the, 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 those leaves, those big, giant, way interesting looking leaves walking out of Dr. Seuss pages <laughs> and they're in my forest. <laughs> right out of Dr. Seuss. Well, Dave, <laughs> let, let, to talk about your music, I think when I think back to some of the first things that I've heard of your music, it, it takes me to church, really. Uh, and, and I know that you said your, your, your roots come out of that church music what other inspirations have you pulled into your style and, and what do you hope that people hear from your music? Well, um, like I said before, you know, harking back to um, my, my mentor, Miss Diana Poe, uh, I pull from, you know, jazz. Um, I pull from classical, uh, you know, gospels there. Um, I'm very much, a, you know, big fan of uh, Margaret Bonds and Julia Perry and Clarence Cameron White and our Nathaniel Dett. Uh, and also musical theater too, as well. So it's uh, you'll you'll find uh, an inspiration from <laughs> somewhere <laughs> from one of those. Yeah. In 2020, the Nashville Opera commissioned an opera commemorating the centennial of women's suffrage, and you worked with librettist Mary McCallum. It was called One Vote One, and let's listen to a little bit of that. What went into what went into this music for you? Well, so this is for One Vote One, uh, the opera with Nashville Opera, um, where John Hume said that he wanted to tell a story about voting and the right to vote, uh, but coming from a perspective of people who we don't really talk about when we talk about women's suffrage. Mm -hmm. And so um, 
the protagonist, Gloria, she swears up and down she doesn't want to vote, and she's visited by Diane Nash and Frankie Pierce, and like they're like, go vote, go vote, and so finally she's like, you know, do you know why should I vote? You know, do they think it's fine if all these things are happening to you know my community and my people? We're talking about the black community here, and and, and it's civil rights letters coming to her. Right. For, for those who don't recognize the name. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Um, do they, this is one of the next to last pieces that I wrote for this and it just came from the sky, <laughs> literally. So Larissa, I, I, and I wish people could see Larissa in here <laughs> moving with Faye and Dave's oh. music <laughs> as well. well let, let's get to your music. Where does your music come from? Uh, I, I, I think that most of the inspiration, if there's not some sort of outside force that's like right about this uh like you know for for a commission or something right 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 it it really all is an expression of my inner world um i am a neurodivergent person and i spend a lot of time in there mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's sort of like a you know um a place that inside of your mind is a place that no one else gets to see unless you release it in some way and usually the only way to for for me to be able to connect people with my internal world is through art mm -hmm. and uh most of my work is about that it's about what's happening in here um because those that those are the only things that i know to be totally true are the things that are inside of myself um so some of my first pieces were really just about uh, what was happening in my brain at the time right. and how I was feeling and my relationships to uh, my different uh, intersecting identities and my relationship to my community, to my family and, and things like that. Yeah. Well, let's hear a little bit of what goes on in Larissa Meister's head. <laughs> this song is called Rotation. Let's listen. myself breathing along <laughs> with the music <laughs> on that piece, really getting into my body there. Uh, so you're working with the National Ballet this season. Uh, how important are collaborations like that and those kind of commissions to making a living as a composer? Oh, my gosh. Uh, really important. Um, I, I, I mean, I started writing uh, instrumental music, and I, I also write songs, and I also sing pop music and stuff but like I write instrumental music for myself and it wasn't really a there wasn't a thought about that being a part of my income um but I was asked uh to I was commissioned to write a piece for the Nashville Ballet that w that premiered last February and that was a huge step for me uh into the possibility that I could do it and help <laughs> pay my mortgage uh, you know, um, and that is really the the way um, that I feel like community organizations like the ballet can really support uh, composers, local composers, by asking us to collaborate. I love the feeling of collaborating with someone else um, because it means that the thing that you make is something that you couldn't make on your own. Yeah. And that is, it's such a, a special feeling. Uh, it's its sort of like there's some kind of 
alchemy or magic there that happens. Yeah. Well, speaking of collaborations, Faye, Nashville audiences were introduced to you through your collaborations with Abigail Washburn, who plays bluegrass and beyond on the banjo. How has work with musicians here impacted your music making? Uh, it's been uh, playing a big part of my uh, self-growth and my um, understanding and appreciation uh, of uh, cultures and music traditions that uh, I wasn't born, not native to me. Um, and uh, I have become, a, I would say, a, a better musician, a better person, uh, and whitens my repertoire or my, my uh, recipe uh, of making music. And... Uh, understanding even more of uh, my own instrument and my own background, uh, what new possibilities there could be and there has been. So it's just a tremendous, uh, wonderful experience. And I've collaborated with um, musicians from India, from Bali, I mean, from Indonesia, from uh, uh, Europe or uh, kind of yeah, all over uh, other parts of uh, Asia. Uh, it's uh, And I also have, made me realize how similar we all come from because I realized mm. pentatonic scale is not just a, a Chinese thing. It's actually the Irish music has their own pentatonic. Uh, blues and jazz have their own pentatonic. Uh, Indian music, rock have their own pentatonic. So it's just a, a different version. Maybe, you know, the trees are different and then the strings, the weather, the stones when they turn into instruments and then the tonality, the timbre. But they're all, you know, come from the same common ground, uh, like a yearning for connection and that those uh, the five elements are coming out of uh, um, the first five harmonic series is really, you know, the physics. So uh, where humans and one string vibrates. So it's like how me have realized, oh, how from the surface, how different we are to fundamentally how similar we are. There's so much that connects us, but there is so much unique flavor in different places as well. Uh, Larissa, what's unique about composing in Nashville? What's what's the flavor that Nashville adds? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, there's there's a beautiful melting pot here. Um, I think uh, in some circles, it's sort of a secret, you know, how, um, how beautiful this uh, community is and, and from how people bring in ideas from so many different places. And I think part of the reason for that is is really because this is Music City, musicians come here hoping to be able to make a living making music. And that just means that there are so many incredibly diverse backgrounds in one place. Um, and we're always working together. We're always learning new things from each other. Every time I walk into a session, with um, a different arranger and composer. We were talking about Nicole Neely earlier in the hallway. Um, I learned something new about the way that their brain works that makes me want to inspect the way that my brain works <laughs> and see if that's in there in me too. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Wufe was just saying it's physics. It, it, really, it really feels that way and it really is true uh, because as we know, like, you know, sound waves are actually waves Physical in waves, the air yeah. and they actually, you're actually being touched um, by someone's art, by someone's brain. And when we're making music together, we are all connecting with each other. We're all touching each other. We're all absorbing things from each other. And that is, that is just the most magical place to be if you want to be making art. Well, composer Larissa Maestro, thank you. We've also been joined by Wu Fei. Thank you both for joining us. Dave Radwin's going to stick around with us through the break. Thank you. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation about Nashville's composers, a somewhat less visible part of our vibrant music scene. Join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. There's an increasingly diverse and vibrant community of classical composers and arrangers in Nashville, some of whom we met before the break. But who is playing their music? And in this day and age, what kind of living can you make writing in the classical genre? WPLN's Nina Cardona talked with conductors Kelly Corcoran, Christina Spinet, and Dave Ragland. 
Here's their conversation from November of 2022. Kelly, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Also with us is composer and performer Christina Spinet. And Christina, welcome to This is Nashville. Hi, Nina. Thanks for having me. Before the break, we were talking about what makes Nashville's scene unique. Now, Christina, you went to Juilliard. You worked in New York before coming here. If there is any city in the U.S. that is commonly associated with this kind of music, it's New York. So what drew you to Nashville? Well, I visited Nashville on a complete whim for my 30th birthday. And when I came here as a tourist, I just saw myself living here. It was like this vision of the future that I had so clearly. And I also met my future, my now husband, um, here in Nashville. So it just seemed like a no-brainer to move here. I was struck by how much of a collaborative community I found. Um, The musicians were so welcoming. It's such a welcoming atmosphere, something that is completely different from what I was used to. And I just knew it was the right place. So what was your experience like getting established here in Nashville? It was it was amazingly easy. I reached out to a bunch of people before I moved and just introduced myself. And um, my husband had worked in music venues for a while, and he knew people kind of on the rock side of things, more in production maybe. And I met up with a producer who told me about this classical composer study group that happened every Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. at um, the arranger and composer Carl Marsh's house. And he's like, you know, I can't go to this breakfast, but you should go. Just, you know, show up and maybe just say that I, you know, recommended that you go. And and so I showed up at Carl Marsh's house, didn't know anybody, and was just welcomed into this group of amazing composers, Future Man, uh, a bunch of composers and arrangers in town. They didn't know me from anywhere. <laughs> But they just kind of welcomed me in and, and made them one of them. And, you know, they have these concerts that happen maybe once every season. And I forget how Kelly and I met, but, you know, it was the same with her. I just connected immediately. And, and the great thing is that everyone is very willing to help their own, you know, to help each other out. And I don't feel like there's an atmosphere of competition. It's more like camaraderie and we all want the best for everyone else. Well, now Kelly, you come to this from a little bit of a different angle. You conducted on the staff of the National Symphony for years. You have started your own orchestra here. You've worked all over outside of Nashville as well. Now from your vantage point, what sets our local scene apart? Yeah, I mean, there are so many incredibly talented composers that live in Nashville. And I think just listening into the conversation, you know, that you all have been having, um, I think you heard a taste of that, right? These incredible composers that bring their own unique identity and voice to the work. And it is Music City. And like Christina said, you know, this collaborative spirit of everybody learning from each other and growing and supporting each other. And it really, truly is a special place. And so I just am filled up every day by the amazing artistry that's happening in our city. Now, your ensemble intersection is dedicated to elevating new and innovative works from from women and non-binary composers. What inspired you to start this? Well, you know, I think contemporary music is is a reflection of our time, of our world today. And of course, there are so many voices that are writing instrumental music. We don't only do instrumental music, but that's you know, primarily what we focus on. And so I think it's just an inherent natural part of the work to ensure that all voices are having an opportunity to be heard. Um, so it really is is not hard to find great composers <laughs> writing music um, that represent so many different identities and experiences. And for Intersection, you commissioned a piece from Julia Adolph. It's called Paw Plume Prowl. Let's listen to it.
It's part of a project called Listen. What should people know about that project? Sure. So this was a project that we did um, during the pandemic where we commissioned over 20 solo works um, by female identifying gender non-conforming and non-binary composers. And they were all about five minutes in length for solo performers um, intended for young audiences, but people could really write whatever they wanted. Uh, Christina was one of the composers that we commissioned. We com commissioned a, a number of local composers and composers from all around the world as well. Um, and so it was just so exciting to see the the true, um, just fun and playfulness that a lot of composers brought to it, but deep introspection and, and again, just everyone bringing forward their own unique voice. So it, it was a really awesome way for us to just continue to create new relationships with composers in our community and also for the performers to get to interact with the composer and really write a piece truly for that unique performer. So Intersection is, is clearly making places for new music. Uh, composer Dave Ragland is still with us. Dave, when it comes to getting your music performed, how has Nashville changed for composers over the years? Well, I would say that Nashville um, definitely has changed, um, you know, dramatically uh, since the time that I first, you know, got here, you know, some decade and a half ago. Um, I still believe that there's, you know, still kind of a ways to go, but there's definitely some market improvement. Um, to have the honor to be asked by John Humes to, you know, reach out to Mary McCallum and create an opera that celebrates um women's suffrage and civil rights movement and Nashville's role in that was was amazing. And well, also to be asked by you know Paul Basterling to collaborate with the ballet and Oz Arts. So the opportunity, I've been very blessed. Uh, uh, yeah. You seem to have become a go-to guy for writing music that shines a light on the Black experience. How does that feel for you? Well, it's... it's uh, I mean, you would want to say that it's an honor, but also it's, uh, I guess, a responsibility mm -hmm. um, in that, you know, I have a responsibility to, I believe, uh, like I said before earlier, you know, Dr. V.J. Caldwell and, you know, Miss Edna Gilliam and the, the those people, church musicians? right, the yeah. church musicians and making sure that their legacy um, as far as you know, musical influence um, lives on. Is that a direction you were trying to take? Not intentionally. <laughs> I think it just it just happened. It's like, yeah. you know, sometimes you're just called to do things, I right. think. Now, you know, classical composing is sort of a lesser known area of our music scene. Kelly, what kind of work goes into getting this music out into our community? Yeah, I mean, I, I like the way, you know, there was already some discussion around collaboration and commissioning of works, because I think, and even what Dave was saying about working with these different partners in the community, um, I think it's great when everyone, you know, works together to create new work. And so there is, of course, a financial cost, right? You know, especially when you're working with professional players to make sure everybody gets paid um, and just have the resources available to continue to present new work. So I think that's ongoing work that we do because, you know, there are so many composers we have yet to hear their music right and so i think just continuing to to um, advocate for resources and funding to continue to support the creation of this new work is a big part of it um then of course you know all the other logistics of instrumentation and uh, venue and you know all the stuff well christina you have done these more kind of traditional collaborations with orchestras for in-person performances but you've you've also been kind of an innovator in getting your music out there Talk to me about how you've used NFTs to reach new audiences. Yeah, so I discovered the world of NFTs and Web3 about two years ago in the summer of 2020. And I saw this open marketplace for artists to be able to sell their work and connect with an audience without all of these larger institutions and third-party intermediaries. And I was just drawn in because I feel like ever since I graduated, I've been fighting against like large institutions to get my music heard. So this was a way for me to find a path to kind of circumvent those traditional avenues and do things my own way. So for those who aren't uh, so as actually, familiar, what just quickly, what is an NFT? So the NFT stands for non-fungible token. It's basically a digital item 
that is linked to the blockchain. It could be anything. It could be visual art. It can be music, a poem, a document, anything in the world. It's a digital asset. Well, and then how does that work on your end? So I compose a piece of music, um, and there are many different ways to release music art in the Web3 space. There are platforms that kind of host artists, ones like Async Art and Catalog, and I've been a part of both of those. Uh, But it also gives you the option of creating your own site and kind of selling your own NFTs from your own Web3 compatible site. So you're just... Uh, So an artist can basically do anything they want. So you're just having a um, direct connection with your audience in a way, it seems. Exactly. And people connect through their wallet addresses. So once somebody buys a piece of my work, I will be able to contact them. I know exactly who it is by their digital signature. And it's just more more of a direct way uh, to connect with collectors and an audience. Kelly, why is it important to reach new audiences for this music? Well, these are the stories of our time. This, these are the stories of our community. Um, and so I think, you know, inherently, um, there's something to experience and learn and grow through listening to this music and engaging with it. And I like to think of Intersections Mantra as ears wide open, <laughs> and that our goal is really to kind of shift and expand perspectives and how people think about the world and society and relationships and everything. And I feel like this music is such a vehicle to, uh, you know, just a catalyst to engage in a rethinking about our community and our world. So that's, that's why I think it's great to listen to new music and it's all different. You don't know what you're going to hear until you come. Well, that's conductor Kelly Corcoran. She was joined by composers Dave Ragland and Christina Spinet. Thanks for joining us. And we want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of Nashville Public Radio. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. This re-air was produced by Char Daston. The original episode was produced by Magnolia McKay and hosted by Nina Cardona. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. And the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ecolona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other. And in honor of today's topic, we're going to go out with a song from composer Tracy Silverman, who's playing with Nashville's Alias Chamber Ensemble. This composition is inspired by the mighty Cumberland River. Enjoy.
Funding for This is Nashville comes from you, our listeners. And Pinnacle Financial Partners, an equal housing lender, supporting minority communities and low to moderate income buyers with specialized loans to become homeowners. Learn more at pnfp.com home. And Pasteria, a celebration of Italy in Nashville, offering catering for parties and business events, featuring fresh pastas, salads, and seasonal vegetables. Menu and details online at eatpasteria.com. This is 90.3 WPLN, Nashville Public Radio, 91.5 WTML Tullahoma, and 91.7 WHRS Cookville. When you join Nashville Public Radio's new newsletter, The Nash Villager, you get the day's top stories and big-picture conversations delivered direct to your inbox. Your human-powered daily guide to Nashville. Subscribe at nashvillager.org. Funding for Here and Now comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm Deepa Fernandez. And I'm Scott Tong. This is Here and Now. Coming up, UN relief workers have finally reached northern Gaza to deliver humanitarian aid. We will hear some details. Also, a new book shines a light on the Indian government's practice of imprisoning critical voices. India's political prisoners are mostly the country's most important lawyers, thinkers, who often come from minority communities. And scientists want to make, well, scientific findings about UFOs. But good data has been hard to identify. We have to make this an international collaboration of scientists, not including, you know, the drunk uncle that saw something. Coming up here and now. The news is first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Israeli officials say two hostages were released by Hamas 